Hey, Miss Nicole, how are you? Good, it's Nicole. How are you doing? Good, good, good. How's your day going? It's good, yeah. Enjoying this spring weather. Um, it's nice in D.C. What about you? Same here over in Jersey. Same here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nice to be talking with you. I just want to say thank you for accepting my invitation to coming on my podcast. I appreciate it. Of course. You came highly uh, recommended by Zerlene, my longtime colleague. So glad to join you. Excellent. So first, your first topic is, are more black and brown people incarcerated than white people because they committed more crime? Well, I think anti-blackness is at the center of the American criminal legal system and explains mass incarceration and the over-representation of black and brown folks in the criminal legal system. That um, overrepresentation, when you walk into a prison or a jail and you see this overwhelming representation of blackness and brownness, is because of the cumulative disadvantage that black and brown residents experience. Um, starting with policing in the United States, and this dates back to the early 80s and explains the 700% growth in incarceration between the early 70s and 2009 when the United States prison system peaked. But since the early 80s, the chance of coming in contact with police in the United States grew. And because of that, once people come in contact with police, they have a higher chance of getting arrested. Once arrested, they have a higher chance of going to prison. And once in prison, they have a higher chance of serving time in prison longer. And that reality, that over-policing, that high rate of contact with police is most acutely felt in majority black and brown neighborhoods where police um, prioritize their resources and their policing practices, um, resulting in those high rates of arrest for black and brown residents contributing to that cumulative disadvantage that you see when you walk into a prison or jail and you see this overwhelming representation of blackness or brownness behind the walls. I understand because so many people are community because what you said throughout history, we've experienced um, unnecessary violence when it comes to dealing with the police department. And it makes us afraid majority time to go to them for help when you just go off your history, it's like, why would they help us when you've been disrespecting us and beating us down for so long? Well, there's just like so many things going on with what you just said. And let's not overlook or dismiss the uh, changes in crime, increases in crime that are being reported on and that people are concerned about right now, given the shooting in New York that happened earlier this week and shootings that have happened in other cities and localities around the country over the last year or so explaining this um you know changes in crime patterns but then also heightening this fear of crime that's really going to influence no doubt the election going into um november and that's probably one of the reasons why the media and some folks vying for elected office or or zeroing in on it and focusing on it and that shouldn't be un, you know underplayed in the discussion of crime policy and mass incarceration 
in the U.S. either. But the response to crime does not have to just be on more policing or disappearing away to people in jails and prisons. If there's an increase in shootings, if there's a recent homicide where a mother now has to bury her young son or her young daughter, their response to that doesn't need to be more police cars in disadvantaged, disinvested neighborhoods, disinvested zip codes. The response to that could be um, more funds for community-based services to address the underlying issues that might contribute to violence in the first place, that might contribute to conflict that escalates to gun violence in the first place. The, the solution could be around addressing gun control. We have a fundamental gun problem in the United States that dates back to the founding of this country that's rooted in many aspects of American history. It's a complicated conversation to dig into, and I'm not a gun control expert, but there are root issues that explain the high rate of gun violence in the United States in particular. And so rather than just throwing money at police departments and increasing the presence of policing in neighborhoods where much of the policing is abusive, it's a reflection of toxic authority in terms of the abusive interaction that uh, law enforcement engages in when they are policing young black men in particular, that the solution to counter the violence, to address the violence, doesn't just have to be on putting more police on the street. There are other ways that we as a country could address the violence. And in fact, in other parts of the world, there's increases in violence. There were increases in violence in in the 60s and 70s, just as there were increases in violence in the US. Those countries did not make the choice that the United States did in toughening sentencing laws and disappearing tens of thousands of people behind prison walls. Those countries made investments in social services from early childhood education to public health supports to reduce criminal offending in the first place and reduce law enforcement interaction in the first place. Whereas the United States made a completely opposite choice. And it is because anti-Blackness was at the center of that choice that led to tough on crime laws and the expansion of prison beds, as opposed to investing in a social safety net that um, prevented criminal offending to begin with. Totally understand. Totally. Um, I just feel like also with everything you're saying, um, I feel like there's, if better communication would happen, I feel like things would definitely improve as well, too. Better communication between individuals within or between the government, the state and in, and citizens. Just everybody involved. Uh-huh. Well, there is a way to, to support that. Again, if prevention, if money was directed towards prevention to support better community supports, to fund better community supports, then strengthening communication as a as a um, response to any conflict could help avoid gun violence or any escalation of violence, any escalation of conflict into violence. So there could be conflict mediation services. There could be a non-court infrastructure or non-court capacity developed that allowed people to resolve conflict when it gets started 
conflict in families, conflict within neighborhoods, conflict between neighbors. And when you go looking for non-court related mediation services, it's actually challenging to find it. I know because I've personally looked into it myself for um, my family. If you're not going through the courts, okay, there are very few places for people to go, if any places for people to go to, to help improve communication and help address or mediate any conflict that people are working through and navigating through. And sometimes people can see it. They know that the person they're dealing with has a tendency to like pop off and, you know, and, and take things to a place that wouldn't help anybody. And right. where do you go when something like that is happening, especially if you don't want to involve the police because of the, you know, because of problems that might happen if you bring the police into the discussion. You always hit the nail on the head. I couldn't agree more. Um, your next topic is what is the future of mass incarceration? Well, I think it's always a challenging one, probably uh, uh, mostly in the United States because it is so politicized. So before this year, there was a real effort around decarceration, some of it because of COVID and decreases in jail admissions and, and decreases in people being sentenced to prison um, once they were arrested and charged with an offense. So the prison population has actually declined recently um, between 2019 and 2020, the last year that we have numbers available. Um, and the prison population since 2009 has declined by 11% overall. And some of that is because of the COVID um, experience, right? Those decreases in jail admissions the decreases in sentenced people sentenced to prison and then going into state prison from jail. So there have been some decreases and, you know, before this year, so hoping that that those increases would continue and that right. we would um, continue to be focused on decarceration changes. That 11% decline is very modest compared to the growth. So 11% decline since the, state and federal prison population peaked over 10 years ago in 2009, but that 11% decline followed a 700% increase in the number of people in prison between 1972 and 2009. So yes, great that there was some decline, nowhere near as substantial as what characterized the mass incarceration era between the early 70s and the late uh, 2000s. So what's the future of that is to continue to focus on the lost humanity that's been disappeared behind the walls. In spite of that 11% decline, the United States still has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. That is a reflection on what kind of society we are and it's a stain on the United States, it, it, building on many stains in the US, given the history of slavery and Jim Crow and other systems in this country that does not make this country a shining city on a hill, like some like to claim that it is. Right. And then in the midst of new crime concerns, focusing attention on what are non-punitive, what, what are ways to counter any anti-blackness as part of a crime 
control public safety strategy because that anti-blackness is at the root of the mass incarceration problem and at the root of disappearing people away because we because practitioners from police to judges to parole boards assume that uh, black defendants in particular don't have a future when they're caught up in in the trap of mass incarceration so the future is to center decarceration strategies and organizing goals around non-punitive responses to crime, prioritizing resources towards reducing contact with the legal system in the first place, and then for people who are currently just as impacted, addressing the services, supporting the services and needs they have in order to not go back into prison. That means funding living wage employment training efforts, supporting quality affordable housing, getting people the public health or therapeutic support they need to address conflict mediation, to address any other stressor, life stressors in order to avoid whatever conflict or walk away from whatever conflict that might lead uh, to future contact with the legal system. So in your opinion, do you feel like this decline will continue over the next five to 10 years or do you feel like it will go back up again? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't, I can't know for sure. I do know though, that if there aren't sustained conversations to counter the tendency towards mass incarceration, given the last 40 to 50 years, that it's, always possible for new uh, for increases in prison admissions and increases in state prison populations. So, you know, we've been building on this. We've been building on challenging mass incarceration for many years now. There's a growing effort around it. We can't let that effort go away in the context of, you know, uh, rising fear on crime and people demand better. And we have to keep focusing people on what they deserve, not what's easiest in terms of disappearing people who might, many of whom are certainly guilty of rule breaking and law breaking, but still have a future. You know, they're still somebody's child. They may be somebody's parent. They are more than the worst thing they ever did. And even if they did break a law and are going to be held accountable for that law breaking, it doesn't mean that they should be wasted away in a prison warehouse because of their uh, criminal conviction. I couldn't agree more. I believe everybody deserves a second chance. Like none of us are perfect. We all have our flaws about us. And, you know, this month is actually Second Chance Month, and there's been, um, built, you know, growing awareness around that, particularly for the 19 million people who have felony conviction in this country, and that pales in comparison to the nearly 100 million folks who have some form of criminal conviction. Either they have an arrest record or even a misdemeanor offense. Um, And that's where we get that much larger number of people with a criminal conviction. So, you know, this is Holy Month with Easter and other um, mainstream religious holidays being acknowledged and and reflected on. 
and it's second chance month. Uh, President Biden issued a national resolution marking April 2022 a second chance month that, um, earlier this month. And it's an opportunity to have the conversation around what second chances looks like, particularly for the hundreds of thousands of people who exit state prisons, state and federal prisons each year, plus all of those tens of millions of individuals living in the community with a, a criminal conviction. Well, that's definitely a step in the right direction. We just got to keep moving forward and have, continue to have that mindset. Absolutely. Absolutely. So your next topic is why is it important to close prisons? Well, it's important to move forward on decarceration efforts that help reduce the number of people who are in prison, given the country's large incarceration rate, substantially high incarceration rate and that growth that we've talked about um, earlier. In a handful of states, including New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, California, they've actually reduced their prison populations by over 30% since they peaked. I think moving forward to downsize those state prison systems, given the significant decrease in the state's incarceration rate, is important to reduce the overall number of beds in the country, the overall number of prison beds in the country. Because we lock up too many people in this country. That's why we have the mass incarceration problem we do. Right. So moving forward to decommission prisons will be an important step to permanently minimize the number of lockup facilities that people, mostly black and brown, are disappeared to. And I think given the reality that New York and California and a handful of other states this year are having serious conversations around prison closures and prison reuse, permanently reusing closed prisons for non prison uses for non-correctional uses will help to show that there are serious ways to move prisons into other purposes, thereby permanently reducing the number of prison beds. And I think that's just going to, that's an important step towards really getting at the mass incarceration problem is permanently taking these prison beds offline. Well, like I said earlier, we just have the mindset everybody's on the same one accord. Then I feel like we'll eventually someday get to a place where there's not as much crime in the world. There's not as much death in the world. And there's more people who have a second chance at freedom to rebuild their life. Absolutely. And that they were promised something even before they came in contact with the criminal legal system to begin with. I mean, one of the issues is that the American social contract never was focused on black residents, was never focused on black people. Even following um, the civil war and post reconstruction period. And in fact, the whatever the American dream is, it often excludes black people from it in spite of um, Dr. King's great words in, 
in in the March on Washington so many years ago. I mean, in general, the American dream excludes many black folks from it. So part of it isn't just about people who come through the criminal legal system and helping to support their second chance, but understanding that for so many black residents, they never even got a first chance. And so really offering a, a, a critique of the way the systems contribute to mass incarceration, contribute to overrepresentation of black rep, of black residents in uh, the the country's prison system, and then working to challenge what gets people there, understanding that the way in which the system is organized and structured contributes to that overrepresentation, because other countries don't make that choice because they don't dehumanize and dismiss the future of their most marginalized residents in the way that legal practitioners in the United States do because anti-Blackness is a through line in various systems of oppression, including the mass incarceration issue in the United States. So I just it's just so important to recognize that there is nothing wrong with Black people, right? There's nothing, there's no right. um, reason, the reason why Black people are overrepresented in the nation's legal system is because of policy choices by white elites who dominate policing, judicial, and parole practices throughout the criminal legal continuum. And those policies and practices have built upon themselves over many years. Um, and as the Jim Crow system was abolished and in, in undercut with the um, 1960 Civil Rights Act, Fair Housing Act, and the Voting Rights Act, the system of anti-Blackness reinforced itself on mass incarceration. And a bunch of tough on crime sentencing laws were adopted. Investments in policing were focused on contributing to those high rates of police contact that Black residents in particular have experienced dating back to the 1980s. And it's the choices by practitioners and how to respond. Practitioners, mostly white, and how they choose to respond to rule breakers and center anti-blackness in those in their practices that drive incarceration rates and that explain the mass incarceration problem in the U.S. It's really really sad. <clears throat> it's just. Like, I feel like at times it's like we're picked on because there's more of us in the system than any other race. And it's just, it's really sad. Well, it's sort of a confirmation bias that okay. is like rooted in that chicken and egg scenario. There's a lot right. of black people in there. So then people who are biased to believe that black people commit more crimes you know, assume that what they're seeing confirms that and yet don't recognize that their choices, they they have choices to um, counter that and that there are a range of other choices by other practitioners in the system that could work to counter that as well. In addition to the root reasons for why the, that dis, um 
that overrepresentation of black um, residents in the criminal legal system is there in the first place. Right. Like anything in life, we all have a choice and whatever choices we make, there's always a consequence that comes with it, whether it's good or bad. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So your next topic is, in your opinion, is the criminal legal slash justice system racist? Well, like I said, I think that anti-blackness is at the center of it. Right. I think, it, and because anti-blackness is at the center of it, the U.S. officials responded with an increase in crime by adopting tough mandatory minimum laws, abolishing parole, making it very difficult for early release once people are sentenced to prison. It explains high arrest rates in certain neighborhoods. And because anti-blackness is at the center of it, criminal legal practitioners um, you, you, uh, participate in decision-making that really explains the outcome of disproportionate impact or disproportionate representation of Black residents in the criminal legal system to begin with. So I would ask, and you feel like there's more um, representation in the White House of Black people when it comes to dealing with um, legal um, actions and stuff of that nature? Do you feel like things will start changing in the U.S.? Well, I think that if there is an intentional effort to counter anti-Blackness, then Black perspectives and Black leadership might contribute to that. But I think right. it has to, but I think even Black people have a role in countering anti-Blackness in the systems that lead to mass incarceration and other poor outcomes for Black residents. And confronting whatever implicit bias. I mean, we all, even when Black in the U.S., we grow up in a white supremacist country. So just because we are Black doesn't mean that our decision-making won't be um, influenced by white supremacy unless we are intentional about countering it. And so Black staff in the White House, as, as long as they're intentional about it, Black staff on the judiciary or Black police officers, as long as they're intentional about it and using whatever authority or influence they have to help counter anti-Black policies and practice. But that, but it, that has to be a part of the work. That consciousness has to be a part of the work, not just assuming that people with Black skin um, or who, rate, who identify as African-American will do their part because we, I know, <laughs> in my personal experience. And I think we all have, you know, we can all point to people who just because they are Black doesn't mean that they're actively countering anti-Blackness. Valid point. It's all about your attentions. You got to want, and you, in order for things to change, you got to want to help the process along. Yeah, that's true. You have to be very conscious and intentional about it. It's important. Very true. So your next topic is, can you detail how D.C. jails work and why it is considered federal custody? Well, there's two issues there in, in that question. 
uh, people sentenced to prison in DC go into the Federal Bureau of Prisons because DC does not have a local prison. It's a very unfortunate um, in many ways because it means there's support to build a new prison in the DC area. People in jail in DC are either in jail pretrial, so they've been arrested, they might be in jail for a few days while they're charged and then released until they go to trial. Um, and then there's a there are people in the DC jail, in the local jail, who are there on a parole violation. They're under community, uh, super, what they call community supervision in the district, and they've been rearrested for a violation while under supervision. And so they have a term, they have to complete a term of incarceration as a part of whatever accountability system um, they're being held to. So DC is a complicated jurisdiction because it is a locality, it's a territory, it's right. a district. And it um, closed its local prison in the late nineties. And so now the uh, more than 4,000 people who were district residents before they were sentenced to prison, either on a local DC charge or a federal charge, because in DC, um, there's definitely a mix of, and probably a higher proportion than other states in terms of whether or not you're sentenced under the federal system or the local DC code system. But regardless of which federal, regardless of which criminal code DC residents were sentenced under, if they were sentenced to prison, they are in the Federal Bureau of Prisons and some, many are thousands of miles away, as far away as Texas, as far away as California. So it's a real challenging issue for many of the family members who are left behind because of how difficult to compete to visit loved ones who are in federal prison um, from DC. Right. So how do you think that situation can be improved in your opinion? Well, I think continuing to focus on decarceration, DC has substantially reduced its incarceration rate, but there's more to be done given that uh, comparatively it has a, it has a high rate of incarceration given the general population and the number of people who are in prison. So DC is sort of like a city state when it comes to comparing its incarceration rate, it's not really fair to compare it to other states, given the size, given the general population size, it's more fair to uh, compare it to a large county like Harris County or New York City, Harris County where Houston is or New York City. Um, so continued efforts around decarceration, changing what people can be sentenced to jail and prison for from DC can help reduce it's incarceration rate, reclassifying offenses. DC is actually going through a criminal code offense rewrite, um, working to modernize and update its criminal code, reclassifying offenses from felony to misdemeanor, which um, should have real implications for shortening uh, prison terms for currently incarcerated people, allowing them to come home early, supporting anti-recidivism, um, or reentry efforts for those second chance options and, and supporting quality, or let me say this, living wage employment or affordable quality housing for justice involved 
DC residents so that they have the support system in place and um, can successfully deal with all of the, you know, what needs to happen to be a successful adult and don't fall into a future trap that might lead them back into prison. So there's a range of things that we need to do in order to continue to decarcerate in DC and support people in coming home. Yes, because you when you have somebody coming home from prison, you want to try to have the best positive environment around them as possible and try to support them the best way you can okay. so they can get back on their feet right. Yeah, in whatever way that's needed. And it hopefully, um, even if that means maybe they need a new environment to be in with, you know, and whatever that plan looks like in obviously coordination with the person who will be living with, who will be living it. And whatever, whatever dreams or thoughts that they have for their best way to succeed following prison is where that planning needs to start and where that visioning needs to start. And what's really sort of um, tough is that it's it can be really hard to get people to dream. And so creating opportunities to stretch people's imagination about what they deserve particularly in the United States, particularly given the era of mass incarceration, what people deserve, even rule breakers, what they deserve in terms of following through on their next steps or following through on their second chance. That's where the conversation needs to start. And that's how we're going to decrease the number of people in prison from D.C. and in other parts of the country as well. Yeah, because we definitely got to start somewhere to get the ball rolling. Absolutely. Absolutely. So your next topic is how are the LGBTQ community members impacted in jail slash prison? Well, there are, it's prop, there are not enough supports to address the LGBTQ plus needs of incarcerated people. And many times because correctional lockouts might not acknowledge or address the special needs, it puts people at risk of violence inside. So there needs to be affirming policies and practices established and to help characterize prisons and jails um, and support people as healthy in as healthy a way as possible given their incarceration. Um, it's, you know, there's, people can be so vulnerable and addressing those needs is just a really important way to affirm and support people where they are if they happen to be in prison or jail and um you know gay transgendered or queer right this goes back to what we've been talking about throughout this whole time just being a positive support system and giving them whatever they need Absolutely. Yeah. And the reality is, is that there are too many people in prison, regardless of people's sexual orientation or gender. Because there are too many people in prison, having affirming 
situations that hold people accountable, but doesn't make them vulnerable to violence or some other, you know, outrageous condition is challenging in this country. It's not an excuse because systems from uh, state correctional agencies to the federal Bureau of Prisons are accountable to the safety of every of every person inside, including people from the LGBTQ plus community. But it's because we disappear so many people to that, that people's safety can almost be an afterthought. It's not an excuse at all. And correctional officials should be working actively to support decarceration efforts um, so that the people left behind can be in as safe as correctional lockups as possible. But the reality is, is that there's too many people in prison and that explains the outrageous conditions and the high levels of violence that many people experience regardless of their sexual orientation or gender when they're in prison. Yeah, because um, I know a lot of people will say, oh, it runs in my family. Why I did this, that and the third. I'm like, but you can break the cycle. You don't have to follow what somebody did in your family. You don't have to go down the same path. I mean, you can make a difference. People, everybody can make a difference. There is something, again, to the um, to the unfair social contract that many people are subjected to, particularly if they're born into low-income families, given just the intense level of income inequality in this country and how that contributes to a lack of opportunity and disinvestment in certain zip codes around the nation, many of which are over-policed. Right. As the residents of those communities are dismissed and not viewed as people with social currency or social influence. And so police departments can target those communities for over-policing, going back to the realities that, you know, we talked about earlier, higher, higher police contact contributing to higher arrest rates. Well, it's not, it's intentional in many communities, if not all of them, where and how police prioritize which neighborhoods to, to you know, put all their police into or to put most of their police into. And so that reality is about, you know, can be about individuals within families making choices to not fall into the same trap that their um, other loved ones might've fallen into. But it's also about criticizing local and state governments and how they, are not fulfilling their promise to all citizens in their jurisdiction, including black residents in the overly police communities that are driving incarceration rates around the, around the country. It's very true. I couldn't agree more. So your next topic is very big one amongst the hip hop community. Um, what are your thoughts about rappers saying that their lyrics shouldn't be used in court? Well, I know that's a new issue. Um, yep. Well, it's not really a new issue. I think that, that there's probably a, a track record, although I haven't I followed it that closely. I'm going back a while now with prosecutors zeroing in on 
the music of defendants who might be musicians and, and rappers and using their lyrics as some representation of, of crime breaking or rule breaking that they may have participated in to justify um, a, a criminal conviction or a tougher sentence. I think it's outrageous, you know, I think uh, musicians are artists, whether or not their lyrics are a true representation of some event that that happened that can then be used in court is ridiculous. <laughs> and it's and it's a reflection of bad policing and bad prosecutorial practices. If somebody is guilty of an offense that they're charged with, the circumstances around that crime should be the evidence to justify the arrest and the and the conviction and eventual sentence for that defendant not lyric in a song as some representation of the type of behavior that the defendant might have been involved in the defendant in that song could have been over exaggerating or completely fabricating um activity in the in this song. There's so many um, songs from rap to country where the singer or the songwriter are telling a story. Right. It's not autobiographical. So lyrics in and of themselves should not be in, it would be outrageous to convict people solely based on the lyrics of a song unless that the circumstances or lyrics of that song can be corroborated in some other way to verify um, that that criminal behavior is uh, evidence in the in the case that the defendant is is being um, you know charged with or the trial that the uh, defendant is going through. I feel like you're you're putting a cap on the artist being creative like they could be writing a song about a, a violent situation that happened and they could be talking about one of their friends that did something they might not even be talking about themselves absolutely yeah and it could be completely false yep. right? yeah 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 definitely that's like that's one of the big topics that's going around and it's like it makes you as an artist be careful what you're writing about because you don't want the police to be on you. One day you might be pulled over for a speeding ticket or something like that. They have to go to court for it. Then they'd be like, well, what about the time you said this in your song? And it just completely go left. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and so many musicians are actual artists who are telling stories. You know, that's their creative outlet. They may have completely been, you know, fabricated. And to then use lyrics in a court proceeding is just outrageous. And, then, and it overlaps with so many other things, including free speech. So now if people's, if people's um, lyrics can then be used as the basis for a trial, then there's all sorts of um, implications for that. And the whole point of being an artist, you're telling your life story. Or some story. Yeah, you know, I think 
it is clear that some folks over exaggerate. So although a lot of music is autobiographical, but uh, it's, a, it's a much, it's, I think it's a complicated issue. And the reality is if somebody is facing a case, if somebody is in trial and they're a musician and then those, their lyrics being used as a pretext for their character or to justify a conviction, then it can't be, it should not solely be based on their lyrics. It should be based on other evidence, right? It can't just be about the music. That's the basis for a conviction or um, somebody's criminal sentence. It should be about other evidence that's, um, you know, brought into the case as well. Right. It should just focus on that one particular situation. You shouldn't try to bring out bring outside information into the case. It has nothing to do with that current situation. Absolutely. It's very true. So at this point in my podcast, I always turn it over to my guests and you can ask me any question that you want. Um, okay. Well, what are your, what is your audience generally um, want to know? And given your show and sort of the type of guests that you're interviewing. Usually along with me and my audience, like we like to um, gather, like soak up information um, about topics we may or may not know about, like being a student and the guest being like the teacher, like I've interviewed so many different people, lawyers, doctors, um, therapists, um, just getting to know people from different walks of life. I don't we I don't listen or talk about just one particular subject. I like to talk about a variety of different things. So they pretty much expand the mind. Great, great. Right. Yeah, no, that's very important. And it's good to just uh, be thinking through with your audience exactly uh, ways to stretch thinking and to get people to share with people the information that they might have not been thinking about previously. So it's very helpful. It's very good. Yes, yeah, it's, it's all about anything in life, having an open mind. I don't think enough people have an open mind these days. They just get closed minded to one thing and that's it. You're, I'm, you're, I tell people you're pretty much putting yourself in a box. You're not expanding. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Des, this was great. Did you have any other questions for me? Um, you've answered them all. Um, the last thing I want to say is, is there any last advice you want to give to the listeners? Do you have anything else going on in your life? Do you want to promote your social media handles as well? Sure. Well, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram at just Nicole Porter at my name, Nicole Porter on both. Uh, platforms. I would say we're in the middle of an election year. There are efforts to expand voting rights to justice-involved residents around the country, and people in jail in every state, in every locality can vote, um, especially if they haven't been sentenced yet. Um, so your audience hopefully is registered to vote. And it's hopefully supporting justice-involved residents who can vote. I know you're in New Jersey. People on probation and parole off paper and off paper can vote in the state. Um, 
And there's an active coalition in New Jersey working to get people to vote with felony conviction in prison. And there are similar efforts in other parts of the country, New York, in Connecticut, also in Illinois and Oregon. So I hope your listeners are registered, ready to participate in the midterm election cycle. And then if they have loved ones or they themselves are directly impacted, are connecting with them about voting um, eligibility and voter access leading up to the November election. Everybody, make sure you get out there and get active. You want change, you got to get out there and make a difference. It's not going to happen on its own. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Nicole, I just want to say once again, thank you for accepting my invitation to come on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Looking, I very much enjoyed it and looking forward to hearing the recording. All righty. It'll be up probably like in 15, 20 minutes. I don't waste okay. no time. Yeah. So you have a good rest of your day and God bless. Bless you too. You take care. Bye. Bye bye.